Hey everyone, this is Mike Dunn. And I'm Julie Cook. And I'm Janine Dunn. And you are listening to Rethinking EDU, your favorite Rethinking EDU podcast. Although, I don't know if you guys know this, but there might be other Rethinking EDU podcasts out there. That's crazy. Like little doppelgangers floating around in the Apple podcast verse. What do you think, Julie? Have you seen any such podcasts out there? Of course not, Mike. Of course not. <laughs> That's because we are the OG Rethinking EDU. Actually, probably not the OG, but but maybe like the current Rethinking EDU podcast. You know, our fancy little icon there in teal and pink, lovely contrasting colors. And we are back here with our second in series we're calling Dissertations in Practice, where we are featuring researchers from Northeastern University and our um, doctoral cohort. And we're really excited to be joined by uh, Jeff, Caitlin, and Laura this evening for this amazing podcast episode. But as we did in the first of these episodes, we sort of launched off with a little conversation about common things that people have, at least we've heard people asking about doctoral programs. In the first episode, we talked about the difference between an EDD and a PhD. And in this episode, we're going to kick off with a little conversation about what a dissertation in practice is. All of our guests over the previous episode and this episode and other future episodes will have completed a dissertation in practice um, to complete their uh, requirements from Northeastern. And Julie here has been crunching uh, the like logistics and uh the idea of what a dissertation in practice is down to a very manageable bite. And I am curious what she has to say. So Julie, how would you describe a dissertation in practice to maybe the uninitiated? All right. Well, I'll tell you what I think it is after having experienced it over the past three years. Um, I think a doctoral dissertation that is non-traditional so that it's rooted in scholarship but it moves beyond the scholarship it's applied to a context as we'll learn in a minute here um, and aims to really transform practice uh, so it starts with a problem of practice and in the case as is in the case of many programs including northeasterns um, relies on cycles of action research to really um, address the problem of practice. So the researcher, perhaps um, with participants in the context of the study, um, aim to study, define the problem, and then work to advance the organization um, or to address the problem. Um, and I think really part of a dissertation in practice has to do with a, a few other things that are components of this whole idea of a dissertation in practice. It has a social justice component where really it's about the implications for a wider audience, what can be replicated, what can be applied to address the big issues, in our case, in education. How does that sound? What, what can be added? That was awesome. I have to say, I, I feel like you practiced that for a long time. Is that true? I did not, <laughs> but we have been living really it for good. three years. <laughs> so that's true. That's true. Now, Janine, do you do you want to add anything to Julie's description? Any like big takeaways that you think you would just highlight for people thinking about a dissertation in practice? She did a really great job of summarizing that uh, quite concisely. But yeah, um, I just would add again, you as the the researcher, the practitioner, you're really involved in the process, and I, it might look different. Um, you know, depending on what the, what your angle of research is, but like, I know I, in my own, I was, I was in it with all of my, um, participants, um, and that it was a real collaborative sort of effort, uh, which I think is very different than, you know, going for your traditional PhD, uh, that you're working with so many other people, um, and trying to bring about change. And that's, that's like the real emphasis there, right? That we're all change agents by the end of this. So yeah, good job, Julie. Amen to the addition of the tr change agent. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So all of our guests this evening have acted in some sort of context that we're going to hear about here in a little bit um, as change agents. And they've constructed a dissertation in practice. Some of them are further along than others. 
I know I'm still sort of slogging along in the writing part of my dissertation in practice, but we're all putting together this sort of non-traditional uh, document that um, Julie and Janine so nicely uh, put. And we're going to hear from those researchers, and we're super excited because their research is really awesome. Um, and with that in mind, I'm going to kick the mic over to Julie, and Julie's going to chat with our first guest. Julie, it's all yours. Sure. All right. Well, first up, uh, Laura, I wonder if you could please introduce yourself, uh, tell us who you are, where you're coming from, and just about the context of your study. And my name is Laura Walker Andrews, and I reside in Asheville, North Carolina. I am Tennessee born, so you may hear my accent come through. My dissertation in practice is focused on community college students and increasing their engagement in career counseling services. So my master's is in counseling and I have experience in the community college field. I'm also a product of community college um, where I got my associates in general studies way back when. So this was something that I was really excited to be able to do as my problem of practice. Can you tell us a little bit about that problem? Uh, why is it a problem if students aren't engaged? So the issue that I was seeing as a student services professional at my research site was that when students enroll, they have to choose a program or a major. So they're not really given the opportunity like students would be at a four-year university to you know, claim undecided, do a lot of exploration, take different classes. So with community college, you are kind of expected to know what you want to get your degree in when you come in. So noting that, we were seeing a lot of students change their programs or their majors, you know, several times within a semester sometimes. And so thinking about, you know, what can a counselor do to help students figure out what they want to do, um, that's where the career counseling piece came in and working with the admissions team of trying to focus on how we could provide career counseling services when they come in to enroll or, you know, within their first semester or two so that they are more clear about what they want their program or major to be. That is super fascinating. It sounds like important work. Um, how did you decide to tackle the issue? So my participants were students themselves. And the way that I started out my research was I found a really good in with our student success course. So we called that ACA, which stands for Academic Skills Related Course. And it actually started out from a collaboration with the ACA coordinator at my institution. So he was really interested in what I was doing. And there's so much in that ACA curriculum that focuses on career exploration and talking about different services that the community college has. So that initially with my cycle one research was where I started. And I went into each section and explained what my study was about and basically just said, you know, I'm looking for your perspective on, you know, how can we make these services for career counseling something that you would you know, want to be a part of, you know, what do we need to be doing for you to access that? So that's how it started out. And from there, it evolved into the action step. So the action step came about through thinking about what it is we could do to really make it evident that career counseling was something that students could um, have available to them. So another problem that existed was that we had an on-site career center that we shared with the public. So the career center was 
available to the students, but also available to the public. So they did not have a very large staff. And that being said, a lot of the traffic, um, especially concerning our academic programs, the counselors were the ones that were seeing those students. So with the action step, we looked at providing a seminar type of environment where students could come and listen to different topics, whether it be about how to choose their program or their major, um, how to create a resume, and how to go about a job interview. So just, you know, typical career topics that we talk about. And that was the way that we would try to promote career counseling on campus and get students to engage more. So the idea was to really give them the information, give them the access point, hoping that that would engage them more so that they would utilize career counseling. And what did you find out? Did it, did it work? What were your major findings or takeaways? So a couple of my findings were things that if you're in higher education, you probably wouldn't be surprised by. So one was sense of belonging, which is just embedded in the research for higher education. And it basically is that when students feel a part of the campus, they are more likely to engage in career counseling. So if they are you know, impacted by an advisor or a counselor or even their ACA instructor, those are ways that they tend to feel like they're cared about and that increases their confidence to explore more of the services that are provided. And going along with that, there was another finding that is pretty consistent with what you think of when you think of a community college student is that most of the time they're considered non-traditional. And I know that that's a term as of lately, I've seen some discrepancy on whether that word should still be used. Um, but non-traditional, just to say that it may be an older student, someone who's working, someone who's a parent, um, someone who's a different race or ethnicity. So there's all um, types of non-traditional students. And when you think of those things, um, they need to have a certain level of flexibility in their life. And so one of the findings was that if you provide career counseling in a flexible service environment, they're more likely to engage with you. And this was actually a really interesting finding because with the impact of COVID-19, we naturally had to move to a virtual environment. And so offering that type of seminar format for the action step, it helped students to be able to engage a little easier. So particularly for students who were not local, that were distance learners, that was much easier for them to access the services um, without it being a burden on them. You know, you're not the first of our guests to find something that actually was easier this past year. Um, so little glimmers of, of hope here. Um, so for our listeners who are um, thinking about what you're saying, what are some implications uh, for the wider audience besides, you know, your community college? What, do you, what would you like our listeners to take away with them? I think that what I want folks to take away is that there are so many opportunities that you have to be creative and innovative in the services or programs that you're providing. So some of the things that came up for me was, you know, new student orientation and looking at how you're presenting information. So I might share this story that I find a little bit comical because before COVID, our institution would have new student orientation where everyone comes to the auditorium. And as a part of my job, my supervisor would be on stage, but she would call me out. And literally on the agenda, it would say, Laura waves. 
And that was my whole role in orientation was just to stand there and wave and make sure that people saw my face. And so I think with things moving virtually, you know, providing an orientation over Zoom or whatever platform you're using and, you know, allowing the person who's providing the services to give that description can really humanize it a lot. And then also just thinking about how can you um, promote services and programs within curriculums. So it's very similar to the cross-curriculum idea within K-12 education, you know, to be able to not only present your curriculum and information, but also to um, infuse it with other areas. So um, one thing that was mentioned in my findings was that there existed a lot of work-based learning programs where students had to find an internship so that they could get some on-the-job experience. And we had a course called professional development that that was what they learned was how to present themselves in a business environment. So there's really all kinds of ways that we can eliminate a lot of barriers for students if we just think outside the box. And I think that's the biggest takeaway here is just to think about how can you engage as many students as possible, you know, regardless of what they're coming to you with or what their life experience has been, you know, think about ways that you can engage those students in the work that you're doing. Sounds amazing. I know there's so many uh, college students who enter college without a clear direction and uh, kind of feeling lost or like they're just floating around sort of accidentally. <laughs> so um, I, I think um, it's just so important. And I guess uh, for high school teachers who are listening, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's late too to not know, to have so many different directions in your life, but very, very important uh, what you're saying here. So thank you so much, Laura, for sharing your study. Um, fascinating stuff. And I'm sure a lot of people are, are thinking about um, that engagement piece. So, so Mike, we'll kick it back to you. Thanks, Julie. And thanks, Laura. Really fascinating. You know, I work at the intersection of high school and college. And um, a lot of what you're talking about speaks directly to the work that I do with students uh, pretty consistently. And so I really appreciate your highlighting um, those findings for us. So I'm going to bring Jeff Chang up to the mic. Jeff, uh, it's a privilege to have you here with us, really. And um, I would love for you to just start off telling us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your context. Thanks, Jeff. Sure, Mike. Uh, everyone, thanks for having me. My name is Jeff Chain, and uh, it's it's a great honor to be invited to to talk about uh, the EDU, our program, our, our purpose of study, and how this program is going in our lives, and how you know how it actually shape my own lives in my own context. So I currently am is I'm a um, faculty member at a rural community college. So like uh, Roar's, uh, Laura's uh, uh, context. So I'm in a community college settings um, in a rural community college in Oklahoma. Uh, I've been here for uh, seven years. I teach a variety of different uh, uh, business courses. So that's, that's my uh, college. Awesome. And Jeff, can you talk a little bit about um, like the uh, crux of your study? What was your problem of practice and what were you trying to investigate? Sure. So um, my problem of practice is also to, I was trying to understand and examine the student dropout at community colleges and, uh, and eventually to develop a practical and feasible solutions to prevent students from dropping out. And uh, we all deal with uh, increasing, you know, graduation rates and retention rates. Hopefully, uh, that will solve the problem. So that's my problem of practice. And um, and also for the past seven years as an educator in the classroom, in community college, I noticed that every semester there are few students just dropped out without no reason, you know, without without telling me. It just one day they just disappear. And as we all know that community colleges usually have a 
policy of open access enrollment to any students who would like to attend. But still, you know, the studies show that community colleges tend to have low graduation and retention rates. So that, you know, one of the study I can, I can, I can uh, share with you is like, there's 13% of community college students graduate in two years. There's only 22% of them in three years and 28% of them in four years. As you can see, the graduation rate in community colleges is, is not satisfying at all. So that with that said, such low graduation rates may imply a very high dropout rate. So that's, that's the background, that's the, the context of my study. It triggers me to oh, really to dig in and find out what's the issue, what's the background for the dropout problems. How can I, Jeff Chain, you know, as a scholar practitioner, as a change agent too, in this program to make a change? That's great, Jeff. Yeah, and I, I would agree with you, you know, uh, as I was saying um, with regard to Laura's study just a bit ago, a lot of my work is at the intersection of uh, higher ed and, you know, secondary education. And so I, I see exactly what you're talking about. I'm curious if, if you found that um, the issue that you were trying to address was uh, at all unique to your rural um, community college in Oklahoma? Or was it something that was common that you saw in the literature, maybe like across um, community colleges? Kind of both. So in this uh, doctoral study, like, you know, dissertating practice, we have three cycles, as some of our uh, colleagues mentioned earlier. So my cycle one findings is, is, is quite interesting. I mean, I, I share with my colleague a lot of times, I say, I, I teach at a community college for seven years, a small rural community college. And I, I thought I know everything, to be honest. You know, I, I know every corner of the college and I know everything, know all the students and faculty and staff, but through this study is still quite interesting. So my, my primary findings for the cycle one reveal that there are many stumbling blocks for community college students. So these stumbling blocks include a lot not limited to these factors, such as the lack of motivations, lack of mentors, the college on preparedness, the time management skills, health-related issues, and communication skills, growth mindset, you know, family issues, personal issues, work issues. I mean, there are just so many issues in their lives. There are so many burdens, like transportation issues. You know, I have students come to my to my office, they say, well, I can't get a transportation come to class. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, but I thought I know them. But through interview, my participants, I really get to know the deep root causes of their dropout cases, like their co college financial aid and personal financial constraints. For example, you know, students have a full load of work schedule. They have 40 hours of work schedule. They can't come to class. You know, if they want to choose between to come to class on that, you know, during that time period versus they will get a paycheck or be afraid to be fired, they will choose to go to work and miss classes. You know, it's just fascinating to me. And the other one is like technical logical skills. Like we are living in a digital world, you know, with the technologies changing every single day. And we have in the community college settings, we have non-traditional students who maybe 30, 40 years old, but back then when they grew up, guess what? They don't have a, a smartphone. They don't have the iPhone at that time. But right now we, we do everything with iPhone and iPad. And so they're not really get used to this new technology. We have in our settings, we have uh, learning management system like Blackboard and Canvas and you know D2L. They don't know how to navigate those. So. So this, this stumbling blocks, blocks can be categorized into two attributions. First is endogenous determinants. And the next one is exogenous determinants. I'm gonna explain this to uh, terminology to you. So the endogenous determinants are the factors that are internal to participants themselves, which essentially impact their college performance. Whereas the exogenous determinants are the factors that are external to participants' lives over which they may have little control, which eventually will make an impact on their college performance. So this is the cycle one findings. So 
after we find out, after I find out the deep root causes for my students, why they drop out. So for this program, the unique and the beauty of this program is that, okay, what you have to do about it, right? That's the difference. Yeah, that's the difference between this program. Exactly. So, so we have to figure out, so what could be a good solution? What's next? You can't just say, okay, here are the reasons and here you go. So my findings, and then I go back to look at literature, uh, and, and, and the findings within the literature suggest that a, a peer mentoring program can be a solution in which higher level students can provide mentorship, companionship, and encouragement to students. So that will lead me to my action steps and my you know cycle two. That's great. And and so um, talk to us and the uh, you know the listeners out there how you implemented the um, the action steps that you're just alluding to. So <clears throat> my cycle two action steps, I um, divide it into two, uh, three stages. First, investigation. Second is preparation. And the third is implementation, my action steps, my, my, my uh, project. So investigation, so what I did is um, to establish this peer mentoring program on campus, and I utilize PDK. PDK stands for Phi Theta Kappa Honor Society. It's honor society for two-year community colleges primarily. You may have heard of it. A lot of you guys, it's the International Honor Society. And actually, I am the head contact sponsor, faculty sponsor on campus. So I'm basically in charge of PDK on campus. So those students who are members of PDK, they have a cumulative 3.5 GPA. So every year we have, you know, we have two induction members to PTK. In other words, those students are, you know, they're they're kind of ahead. They they know what they're doing. Seems like. So what I want to my idea is what I want to to pair the the um, the PTK members to the non PTK members, kind of pair them up, and uh, you know, one on one, and have this peer mentoring program. So first, what I did is I interviewed the college staff uh, from from the grant sponsor programs because we have some grant sponsor programs like NASA Time and you probably stand for uh, Native American Non Tribal uh, Service in, serving non tribal students and the other one is um, a Trio you may have heard of Trio like you know Upper Bound and you know Student Service STEM and SSS so we have those. Uh, federal grant sponsor programs, they have some similar peer mentoring programs. So what I did is I, I go ahead and interview them. So how do you implement your peer mentoring program? What are the challenges you're, you're facing? You know, and, you know so, so that will help me to in, increase my understandings of the current programs, how their programs function. And I also interviewed the PDK regional coordinator. And so I interviewed her and said, hey, is there any similar institutions in Oklahoma, Arkansas? Uh, region um, from a community college settings, they actually utilize PDK to uh, to implement and establish this peer mentoring program. So that's what I did. That's the first step is to, to investigate. So after I second step is after I have a general understanding of how to implement this program, and I start to list out the plans, action plans. So such as how to recruit my PDK members as peer mentors, how to recruit mentees, how to promote this program on campus, how to provide incentives for mentors, how to provide trainings for mentors, how to construct effective evaluation plans. So the third step, I just start implement implementation process. So that's my action steps. And the next is, of course, the evaluation part. Sure, sure. Yeah, you, uh, I want to, give you just a minute here to describe that. And then I want to get into some of the implications that uh, you might think your project has for some of our listeners out there. Sure. So <clears throat> the evaluation part, uh, I'm going to specifically focus on the findings. So since I started this program last August, I nearly 50 signing forms from mentors were collected, which means I uh, there are about 50 peer mentoring sessions have been performed between mentors and mentees. Uh, there are yeah, there are primary, primary three findings uh, through cycle two. The first one, I feel, uh, I found that students feel connected, encouraged, empowered, and motivated after signing up for the project. They all demonstrate great 
you know, improvements on areas such as communication skills or more social connection on campus since a belonging in the college. And the second finding is I found many students lack clear understandings of federal grant sponsor programs. We do have some students you know, support services on campus, but because of their unique name is, you know, like nice and time for Native American, but actually I find out they're actually for any student, whoever wants to sign up. But students just do not know the existence of these programs or, or to think, you know, I, I'm not qualified. And the third finding is there are many challenges to implement peer mentoring program at the research side, because the college is a two-year community college where most students commute to school and leave campus after they complete their classes, you know? Students have too many responsibilities. They don't have time. They have their families to feed. So that's my primarily primary uh, three findings through my action steps. That's really awesome, Jeff. Yeah, and makes total sense in line with what you were, um, you know, noticing at the at the beginning too. I'm wondering if you can share with us. I think both um, implications that maybe you found, but specifically implications for our listeners who maybe are thinking about how to support their own students as, um, you know, in potentially higher ed settings or community college settings, or even at the K-12 uh, level. Yeah. So I think a peer mentoring program is, even though it's, it's hard and complicated to implement, but I feel like, especially for the community college settings, most community college, because I, I am the uh, PDK sponsor for, for quite Know, five six years most community college have a chapter of a pdk and if any of our listeners are interested to implement this peer mentoring mentoring program i'll be happy to because we're all here for for students you know and uh, we are all making a difference in students lives and our students is basically our product you know after two years or four years and uh, especially during the COVID-19, guess what, students, not, not, they're not seeing each other as they used to. So there's a gap and they can only see each other, you know, like we have like hybrid classes, have Zoom classes. So students don't have this space to connect with each other. So through this peer mentoring program, I, I hope through this platform, students can reconnect to each other and, and just a body up system, you know, they're not peer mentors. I tell them they're not really teaching the peer mentees. Sometimes they just have a, you know, encouragement and uh, just just be there, this companionship. Yeah, I love what you're suggesting, Jeff. And, and I really appreciate you shedding light on your um, study and all of the research that uh, you've been doing at your rural community college. I think it's so important supporting students to success and completion at any level of school, I think is something that educators need to be aware of and motivated to address. Um, and I'm glad you're glad you're doing that work. Thanks, thanks for sharing with us, Jeff. And I'm gonna pass the mic over to Janine. Uh, Janine, um, it's all Howdy. you. All right, awesome. Well, I'm really looking forward to chatting with Caitlin here about uh, her dissertation in practice. So Caitlin, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me tonight. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and where you're from, what you're passionate about? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Caitlin Goodington, and I am a kindergarten teacher, and that is like my whole identity, so it's a big deal. Um, my research is about building community capacity and like really supporting teachers, not just kindergarten teachers, but we do need a lot of support. So I, I'm in a public school in a really rural New England town, and my my district of employment has become my research site. Awesome. I love that we just went from talking about, you know, community college, college experience, and career goals, and then here we are talking to a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> awesome. Um, all right. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about what, what were your research questions and, you know, give us a little context of your study. Sure. So um, before I taught kindergarten, I worked in a preschool setting and, and various summer camps, but my um, undergraduate and master's programs were in both education and social work. And I found that my social work background has really given me a lot of context in what I do in my day to day 
with students and in interactions with families and community. So the goal of my research was really to connect these two fields in a meaningful way. And um, I really, I, because my district is so small, it's really spread out and we have to share a lot of resources that include social workers, school counselors, nurses, even administrators. And that leaves a lot on the, on the teacher's shoulders, um, a, a lot of work that they have to do on top of their um, curriculum kind of responsibilities. That's great. So what were the specific questions that you were trying to investigate throughout your study? So I was really looking at um, teachers as mental health professionals. As many roles as, as, we, as we take on and as many hats as we wear throughout a day, being a mental health professional is really one, not one that should be taken lightly or, or implemented without formalized training. So in my first cycle of data collection, I was really just like fact finding and perspective taking. I was asking groups of teachers, groups of district support staff, and then community partners, um, what they were experiencing around student trauma, adversity, and difficult family factors. So um, I was really just looking at what are you seeing? Um, we know that adverse childhood experiences have been linked to higher risks of health concerns, uh, poor academic performance, and behavioral problems. And although teachers have this, this ability to build kind of this, this special little community where they can support each other and build these environments uh, that are really loving and and allow for this growth mindset. Uh, I just wanted to know, what are you doing? What are you experiencing? How can we help? And, and what gaps are there in our, in our pre-service education that don't really prepare you for um, some of, some of the traumas that are going to walk into your classroom? Boy, you were, you are, your timing couldn't be better for this topic, could it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, collective trauma is a whole new thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh my goodness, but the between the pandemic happening, I think there really is quite a crisis uh, at the moment with teachers having to act as mental health professionals for their students. Um wow, that's 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 awesome. Um so okay, so that was your cycle your cycle 1, uh those are the questions that you're kind of investigating. So then how did the rest of your study kind of carry out? So once specific areas of need were identified, I looked to local professional experts in the area to fill the gaps. So my cycle two action steps included nine community-led professional development sessions that were facilitated based on the specific teacher requests and involved 12 local professionals in different helping fields. So because it all had to be done virtually, it really shifted everything. And I actually had like a five month setback with the with the COVID priorities really taking precedence. Um, and um, I was asking teachers to be on Zoom for extra time after really long and difficult days. And I was super happy with the turnout. And I, I mean, uh, there could always be more participants, but really the teachers that came got so much out of it. And it was really, it was really powerful and validating to see that happen. I was going to say, yeah, I would imagine there were a number of challenges that kind of came about while you were, you know, conducting this study. I know I had some challenges of my own when I was conducting mine. Um, do you want to speak a little bit to that? Like, what were the challenges of carrying out, you know, trying to do an action research project during a during a pandemic? Well, I don't recommend it, but um, <laughs> I have to say that I'm so proud of teachers in general, like, we're killing it every day. And um, to think that when things are really rough, we kind of pull together. And my project was so based in relationship building. And I met all of these new wonderful, wonderful professionals over Zoom and they just, they just jumped right in. So I was looking at, I was asking social workers, I was asking faith-based organizations, I was looking to, to counselors, and food pantries and saying, you know, what's your professional expertise? How can you help us? Look at this list of things that teachers need. How can you support us? And really showing the community that, show, or showing the teachers that when we are in distress, we have this, this big community behind us that's there for us all the way. And um, so one of, my, one of my big findings was really that teachers need to feel supported. And I know that that's, it's all perspective. And I do not blame 
my, my, my district at all for this theme that came out that teachers just felt so isolated. And um, working with traumatized youth or children struggling with behavior outbursts is hard in any circumstance. But trying to do that through a pandemic, trying to do that while they're home, seeing what their living situations are really like and um, kind of getting a new, a new idea. You know, when they're at school, you know that they're in that safe place when they're with you. Um, but when, you're, when you have a, a window into their living room, um, you have a new responsibility of, of mandated reporting. You have a new responsibility of, uh, of know and tell and kind of managing what what what's on you as a professional and and making sure that teachers felt supported during the pandemic was was really like such a such a blessing that I got to, I got to have a part in that the covid-19 pandemic highlighted the term frontline workers right and um, teachers will always be frontline workers they have this ability to give children a safe haven and they have the power to develop resiliency and kindness and accountability and social justice. And I could just keep rambling on. Like we, we have to make sure that teachers have their needs met in order for them to meet the needs of others. And that was, that was just all the more clear during, during the pandemic. I say amen to that. <laughs> Absolutely. The t teachers uh, need to just need to feel that support, uh, even in like little, little ways. It doesn't have to take much um, to, to let them know that they're not alone. They're not isolated because it can be such an isolating profession at times. Did you have, did you have any other major findings or were there, or were your findings um, supported by the literature? Did you yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I was super lucky that the literature was vast in the area of, of trauma and adverse childhood experiences and and helping teachers support students in these new and trying times. Um, so besides making sure that teachers feel supported, which was really my, my number one, um, I also took away that professional learning and resource sharing can build confidence. And that wasn't maybe something that I was looking for from the beginning, but it was it was it was really just amazing to see um, how much more confident the teachers shared that they felt after completing the workshop series. So teaching, especially in rural school districts, can be really isolating, and and knowing that the resources are out there and that the, there are people connected to them out there, even if you never reach out to them yourself, can be really empowering. And this like interprofessional collaboration was really beneficial for, for all the stakeholders involved. So after each session, I did a, a feedback survey, which is kind of fun because action research so often is strictly qualitative. So it was, it was good to kind of throw some numbers in there. And um, I found that 73% um, of my participants reported a novel connection. So someone that they maybe live in the same town with, work in the same town with, these are all um, people in our, in our local district area that they hadn't met before and really felt like, not only is this brand new to me, but, but I, can, I can utilize them. It's something that is immediately ap applicable to my classroom. And then 94% of participants reported that the sessions helped them build confidence in supporting their most difficult student populations. And we know that that difficult students are not always attributed to trauma, but kind of giving them that lens and um, taking away that judgment piece was, was also another really powerful takeaway. Um, and then my final finding was that professionals really want these connections to be formalized. Um, so I had 26 community partners get back to my initial focus group, which was totally overwhelming and amazing. And I just never expected that in, in such a small town. But um, yeah, it was really about maintaining the open communication and having this active, interactive relationship, even when it had to be virtual. Um, and, and knowing that we could make it a more formalized manner for sustainability purposes, that after my research is done, this work is important, that I didn't do it 
just for this degree, that I really did it because I believe in the cause. And I know that teachers feeling supported, teachers feeling more confident will only help our students feel those same ways. Yeah. What a blessing you must have been to your community there to really bring about all of these connections. We've been talking about this a lot, about making connections. I think that's probably going to be our running theme here. But, um, you know, when you think about those those major findings and, you know, what are the implications not only for your local context right there, but, you know, for any of our listeners out there, um, how might this apply to them? So um, I think because I have an early childhood background, I always kind of use this lens of early intervention. And I just think if we can help these families before they're in crisis, what a wonderful world it would be. Um, so I'm thinking about like, I'm thinking about protective factors, right? And how we can build resilience. And it's not just about teaching self-regulation to students. And, I, and that's a wonderful push. And I'm so glad that that's happening all across schools. But really, we need to, we need to think about supporting entire families on how to connect, on how um, childhood development works, on social emotional competence. And the good news is that these skills can be taught and they can be explicitly and they need to be explicitly taught, not just to students, but to families and, and to teachers. And a self a well-regulated adult is makes for a well-regulated classroom. So um, my advice is that teachers need to take the time to reflect, like really sit down with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Make sure that your psychological safety and belonging needs are being met in your school and in your classroom. And if they're not, start there. There's work to be done. And if they are, then work on, work on esteem and self-actualization. The confidence is built when you have the opportunity to learn and share with others. And there's no better population to do that with than the local experts in your region. So it's all it's all about this local community. We have this this vast, beautiful resource in social workers and, and, and in counselors and therapists and in doctors. And um, we just need to make those initial connections to get there. Um, so when I'm saying seek out professional connections, like that's absolutely advice that I want to give to every educator. But I also need to, in the same breath, say that um, doing this job in a professional professional silo is immensely difficult, but um, making those connections can be too. And putting an additional thing on an educator's plate right now might seem impossible. Um, so, so with this advice, I I also want to say that my professional next steps include the systematic change. Teachers should not be expected to be mental health professionals. I know it's happening and I know that we have to find ways to cope with it because it is. But the, the work here for me now that I've done this is to look at resource networks and build a communication protocol for my school district and know that I can lead educators through who to ask for help, when to ask for help, how to ask for help, and how to have difficult conversations not just with leadership, but also with families in getting them through for now. And knowing that, that there's more work to be done, that, that all buildings need reliable social supports and social workers and counselors and psychologists. And those aren't resources that we can skimp on. Um, we all need to have them for ourselves and for our students. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I love everything that you are talking about here. Uh, that completely resonates and connects with on um, for me, um, especially. I know Mike's typing "Amen, Amen" in the <laughs> in the in the chat too. Um, yeah, you're probably preaching to the choir, but yeah, making those community connections, realizing that you know you don't have to be in a silo by yourself. You, I, I love that you talked about providing the opportunity to reflect. I think that teachers are often told to reflect but they're not given the time to reflect. And I think that when you talk about, you know, some systematic changes there, um, I think that from the top down, they kind of need to be thinking about, you know, when are we giving our teachers the time to actually reflect and, uh, and kind of go from there. But anyway, I'm going off on a tangent, but 
Um, Caitlin, it's been a pleasure um, talking with you and hearing about your study here. And, you know, congratulations on, on heading down the home stretch of, of uh, your getting your dissertation done. And um, we really wish you the best of luck with everything. Hey, everyone. This is Mike. Thanks so much for listening to our second episode in our Dissertations in Practice series. We love having these awesome conversations with our colleagues from Northeastern University, and we hope that you really enjoy them too. If you love what you hear and you are just yearning for more Rethinking EDU in your life, please hop over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash rethinkingedu. Your $1 a month goes a super long way to helping us keep the lights on. And as always, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps so much. And share our podcasts with uh, your friends. We would love that too. Also, be sure to check out our very own Matt Downing's podcast, Diving Deep EDU. Thanks. A quick interruption to let you know about another great podcast. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Diving deep, EDU. Thought-provoking conversations. All of our guests, thank you so much. It was really lovely hearing about all of your research and uh, every episode of Rethinking EDU, we spend a little bit of time thinking back to the conversation and connecting it to how it's encouraging us to rethink education. We'd love uh, to do a little bit of reflecting right now. Julie, I know you always have some great thoughts to share. What is this conversation making you think about? Well, one of the things, uh, since we started off talking about what is a dissertation in practice, I think, um, you know, you don't need to pursue a doctorate to kind of take on that stance of uh, looking around you as all three of our, our guests tonight really did. Like uh, I think Laura, like people around her must have for years said, you know, well, we have these services and it turns out no one's coming <laughs> or, um, you know, we, we could have um, Jeff's just continue to say, well, kids are you know, up to 80% of our kids are dropping out. Look at that. Or, you know, Caitlin could have just said, you know, well, we have these kids um, and these families, but teachers are not mental health professionals. So, you know, and just kind of move on and just do things the way we've always done them. So here's a real process or a mindset um, that all three of you took where, you know, to wonder what could be different, um, analyze the problem, uh, think about what could be done, enlist some support and set about doing it. And um, just that kind of cycle of action research that you all talked about. But I think like anyone can adopt that stance in their context. Yeah. And then I, I'll hop on here with uh, just thinking more uh, thematically here about what, what was presented to us between all three of you. I, the thing that stu stuck out to me was this idea of connecting people. I think Mike actually started off, said something in, at the very beginning about connecting people. Um, and I feel like that came up in all three of your studies that people need to feel connected um, and that we need to build relationships and that by building relationships, it, it that actually fosters engagement, whether that's engagement for students or engagements for, for the teachers themselves. Um, and in a way that by building those relationships, it, it actually holds people accountable. You know, like I even think about my own journey in this doctoral program and how, um, <laughs> you know, Julie and I actually work together and are wonderful friends and we, we, we agreed to do this together. And, you know, so like having a wing person, um, definitely motivated me to stay in the program and then meeting, you know, Mike and Matt and Caitlin and Jeff and Laura, like all along the way and, and making these connections with other people, the more people that I connected with, the more I wanted to stick with the program when it was hard, <laughs> you know? Um, so I think that, that, that's just kind of what's, um, sticking here for me is just this this general idea of you know connecting people building relationships um and that's that's where the real work i think comes in as the uh you know uncanny dr chris unger says just talk to everybody about your stuff right just run around the world 
run your idea by everybody and you never know who you're going to meet kind of in the process. I think for me, this conversation reminds me that um, supporting people is just so important, whether that's a community college person, whether that's a teacher, whether that's a preschooler, a kindergartner, a, a an adult, a podcast co-host, you know, that supporting other people, especially these days in the pandemic, is so critical to people's well-being, to people's feelings of connection, and just so we can feel a little bit more human these days. You know, I spend so much of my my day just behind a computer screen. It's so dehumanizing. And it just makes me feel like, are there other people in the world sometimes that are experiencing these things that I'm experiencing? And the truth is, is the answer to that question is yes. And by connecting and supporting people in ways now that we can, that maybe we've never been able to in the past, we can build that humanity back into those just everyday interactions we have with people, those everyday conversations, those mentorships, you know, whatever it might be to help us feel more like we're living a good life and thriving along the way. So Jeff, Laura, Caitlin, I want to turn the mic over to you, not all three of you at once. Laura, we haven't heard from you in a while. Um, do you have any kind of reflections on this conversation tonight? I do. I really enjoyed getting to hear about Jeff and Caitlin's research. And I found little nuggets in both of them that I think um, really promoted that sense of connection that we're talking about. Um, so what I loved about Jeff's research is, you know, obviously we have that community college um, population in mind. Um, but so much of what he talked about speaks to, you know, that sense of community college students have so much going on. So school may not be their first priority. And so thinking about how we can support them is really important. And what I loved about Caitlin's research is I got my start in school counseling. And so the things that she's saying about you know, teachers acting as um, mental health experts, you know, they do get sort of dragged into those types of roles. And so many teachers I've worked with, um, you know, they do have students that have, you know, so many needs that um, are going unmet and teachers are superstars at um, helping out. So, I really um, connected with that, and, you know, I'm all about having more counselors, more psychologists, more helping professionals in schools, and that definitely has been something that, um, you know, is a, a trend that, you know, there are not enough of those people in our schools. So that was just a really um, great conversation, I think, that is happening all the way around. Couldn't agree more, Laura. Couldn't agree. I love your takeaways. Jeff, what about you? What are you thinking? I think this is such a great platform, as I mentioned earlier, that we are from different settings. So far as I see, you know, we got K-12, we got, you know, higher education, we got, uh, you know, as we see before that in our residency, we've got administrators, but we are here uh, not only trying to get a, you know, get a doctorate, Degree, but also <clears throat> through this program, we were able to find a, a problem in our own settings. And then we, we analyze the problems behind them and find out the reasons. And uh, we are trying to come up with a solution. That's, that's the great part about, you know, about this program that we're all, they, they foster us and cultivate us to be the change agent, to be the scholar practitioners. So we're not only just present the data, but also we present our action steps and how those actions were carried out and eventually be evaluated whether it's effective or not. So um, to conclude my talking is I just, I, as I, you know, I posted Facebook a couple of days ago that I, I really learned the most. I got, you know, you got bachelor degree and your master degree. I think I feel like I learned the most for the past several years um, when I uh, started this program. So. 
it just it's just great. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, I agree. I've learned a ton through this program. Caitlin, I'd love to hear from you too. Sure. Well, um, I just want to say thank you for facilitating this additional connection here. And I really believe that relationship building is everything. And I would not have gotten through this research or this program without the genius peers that I have met in this program. And I, I so appreciate this additional way to share my experience and my passion with you tonight and, um, you know, all of your your loyal subscribers. <laughs> I Yeah, yeah, me too, Caitlin, me too. Loyal subscribers is exactly what I would call them. And I appreciate you kind of segueing us into our final little bit of this uh, episode. Listeners, we love you all and we appreciate you for just taking time to learn about the research of these amazing people, to hear us co-hosts you know, kind of poke and and tease out their stories. There's so much more that we couldn't have covered in just this short episode. But we appreciate you being here with us. As always, you can head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash rethinkingedu and support us. We have a dollar a month right now. Can it really help us continue this conversation? We hope that you might be able to share um, your extra dollar a month to support our podcast. If not, just keep listening. We'll keep the conversation going. And as always, thanks for taking your time and keep rethinking EDU.